Welcome back again. Now let's turn our attention from the world's failed and, and phony removal of evil to God's word and to God's removal of evil. Uh, we start with trying to understand evil in the Bible. The first thing to notice is the frequency of the word evil in the Bible. It's much more common than bad or wicked or wrong. I mean, it's almost three times more common to say good and evil than it is to say good and bad. And so in one sense, it's just the English traditions have used the word evil rather than using the word bad. But when you check on the various Hebrew words and the Greek words, the word for evil is much more common than bad or wicked or wrong. Uh, the distinctive idea of the Bible is evil. <laughs> this is quite different to modern English, where the word evil is rarely used, and it's just reserved for this profound wicked, as the dictionaries rightly, in a sense, describe how the words are being used. Uh, a friend of mine did a quick check on word usage in Google Books and the graph demonstrated the very point that I'm now making, that over the last 100, 200 years, the word evil is hardly there in English literature, whereas the words bad, well, no, it's very frequently. The second thing to notice, flowing actually from the first thing, is that the word evil is less serious in the Bible than in the world. The kind of rising scale of wrongdoing that I mentioned in the last talk that lies on a continuum leading up to this big thing called evil is not to be found in the Bible. And there's no particular discrete group of sins that you would put in a bag called evil only. E evil can be used almost interchangeably with other words like bad and wrongdoing and sin. However, this is because all these words describe something much more serious in the Bible than in the world. That's because of God's utter repulsion towards all forms of sinfulness, wickedness and evil. While we humans have a sliding scale of acceptance and tolerance and dislike and then avoidance and then criticism, but a very big bag called acceptance, to describe the behaviour of people, we have unethical behaviour, we have immoral behaviour, and then we have criminal behaviour. Before we ever reach evil, God is actually opposed to all of it. He's opposed to all manner of bad, wrong, unjust evil. It's true that there are greater matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness compared to lesser matters like tithing, mint, dill and cumin, as Jesus puts it in Matthew 23. But we're still concerned with obedience of all the law. Law-breaking, you see, is symptomatic of sinfulness. Whether the law we're breaking is large or small, it's symptomatic of our rebellion against God. Basically, Evil is an adjective, much more than a noun in the Bible. Evil describes things, people, actions. Evil ascribes 
how God values certain actions, certain thoughts, certain people. Some things people do are described as evil. Some thoughts people have are described as evil. And some people are described as evil. Evil can be used to describe a generation or the present age, an evil generation or the present evil age the Bible will speak of. And because it's God's value, it has an absolute quality about it. The absolute quality that makes the word so dangerous to use, even for Christians, and so disliked by the non-Christians. When God says something or someone is evil, then in fact, it is evil. For the Creator's valuation of everything or anything is its true worth, its true value. The great problem of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lies in challenging God's prerogative of determination of good and evil. Instead of accepting God's values, and Adam chose to know good and evil for himself to determine good and evil for himself. This is what the Bible means by sin, but this is also what the Bible means by evil. Sin and evil are relational terms. It's rebellion against God that all humanity is engaged in. Sin is not so much breaking the law as making the law being a law unto ourselves, being above the law, being outside the law, being outlaws, being the determiners of what is good and what is bad, what is evil for me or for you or for society. It's seen today all over our Western society as we insist on self-determination. We're the ones who are going to determine what is good, what is evil for ourselves. Nobody can tell me how to live. Every person now chooses for themselves their own values and no one is allowed to impose their values on anybody else. We're committed to self-determination, to autonomy. Autonomy is a good word to describe it. It's made up of two old words, auto, which means self, and nomos, which means law. And so autonomy is self-government. And that's what we all want now. We think we'll be free when we have self-government. Not understanding that self-government is a worse tyranny, a worse captivity than God's government. But yet, even though we have no values that everyone agrees upon, even though we're all living our own self-determined lifestyles, yet we still know there are absolutes. There are some things that are just not our opinion, that we're not really free to choose. We will not, we will not allow self-determination of evil. We will not accept the self-determination of profound wickedness. When we break the laws of God, we're committing sins. 
to murder, to steal, to commit adultery, to bear false witness, to covet. These indeed are sinful actions, sins. But behind these actions is the fundamental problem of sin itself. For behind sins lies sin, lies evil. Sins are but the symptoms of evil. But the disease is called sin. Symptoms are important, of course. They're the things that hurt. They ruin lives, ours and other people's, and they make us feel guilty and they can drive us back to God. Sins, well, symptoms are important, but the disease is what has to be rightly diagnosed and treated. They are, the disease is much more important and the disease is the cause of the symptoms, and the disease must be cured if we are to have any ultimate relief from our symptoms. Genesis 3, which we read before, Lauren read for us in Genesis 3, lays out the great disease that humans carry into the history of the world. To eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to become like God in ways that we weren't beforehand. For when God created us in his image and in his likeness, we still were not like God, knowing good and evil. To eat of the tr fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to become like God in knowing good and evil. Notice again carefully the assessment of Genesis 3 verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Not will become, but now has become. There is our sin, becoming like God in a way that we were never created to be. Becoming like God in our relationship to good and evil. Not in doing evil, God doesn't do evil. Not in knowing about evil, but determining what is good and evil. Because that's how God knows good and evil. It's our relational rebellion against God, being the true determiner of good and evil. Evil, evil therefore, is something that is intensely personal. Everything that God made, he declared as good. Nothing was evil. Even man living alone was not evil. It was just simply not good. Even the serpent is not called evil, but just crafty, prudent. But the creation is good. Even in the New Testament, it's still good. Paul's evaluation of creation is that it is good. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 we read, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving, by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, 
Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. See, God's world is good and continues to be good. What the Bible calls evils are not the world. It's good. But actions, thoughts, people. The world itself is not evil, though it is distorted by our sinfulness and subjected to frustration because, of, because God has subjected it to that through our death. But while the world is not evil, we are evil. For rather than submitting to God, we've rebelled against him and so become by nature evil. Romans chapter 14 finishes with this little sentence in verse 23, I think. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If we're not submitting to God, trusting God, relying upon God, then whatever we do is an expression of human sinfulness. But once starting down the track of rebellion against God, once you start down that track of making up the rules for yourself, you lose sense of what is or isn't truly evil. We no longer recognise what God has called evil. Worse, we start getting ourselves in the terrible position where we approve of what is evil and even criticise what is good. Confuse totally evil for good and good for evil. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's like that horrible verse in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, where God declares his condemnation on the people. Woe! Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. <laughs> Just as I finished writing this little bit, I noticed the morning papers, an article commending how adulterous affairs are actually good for a marriage and that we should change our culture to be much more accepting of adultery as a helpful way of holding marriages together. They exchange good for evil and evil for good. We still live in Isaiah's day, the evil age, as Paul calls it. Rape is evil. Therefore, non-consent is evil. Ah, but consensual adultery, oh, that's okay. Why? It's even good for you and it's good for your marriage. Don't keep your word. That doesn't matter. 
Hate your spouse, that doesn't matter. Destroy your children, that doesn't matter. It's all provided, that's okay. If you wanted to do it and you give consent, to that's perfectly good because consent is the only thing that matters. Not. But the personal nature of evil is still more important in the Bible for rarely will moderns call any person evil. We'll talk of actions as evil, but not call perpetrators evil, except in the most extreme situations. Uh, uh, the mass killer Ivan Malat, or he was evil. But even then, we try to find some way of excusing their behaviour, uh, of calling them psychopaths or sociopaths or some psychiatric explanation as to why they are doing such things. But the Bible is not short in calling people evil. In fact, calling all people evil and blaming our evil hearts, mine and yours, our evil hearts and our thoughts for our evil actions. Just look at the assumption that Jesus made when he's talking about prayer in Matthew chapter 7, part of the Sermon on the Mount. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You <laughs> see the basic assumption? Jesus just assumes that we are evil. Or the passage that Lauren read for us earlier, where Jesus directs his teaching on the subject in Mark chapter 7. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. See how different the world's usage to the Bibles are? Whereas we are loath to call anybody evil, the Bible calls us all evil. And what's more, the Bible is right and our judgments are completely wrong. Have you got the symptoms of COVID-19? Well, you know what they are. They're listed out for you. You know, the running nose, the cough, the temperature, etc., what do you do if you get the symptoms? Well, you just check out whether you really have COVID-19, don't you? Well, have you got the symptoms of evil? Well, get yourself checked. Test yourself. Go to the scriptures. Are any of these you? Verse 21, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, Wickedness, deceit, that's telling lies in case you don't know it, sensuality, envy, slander, pride. If you think you haven't got any of those, the last one captures you. Foolishness. See, you don't have to wait for 24 hours in isolation to discover whether you are evil or not. If any of these are yours, it's because you are evil. That's why the symptoms are there, because the disease is here. For see what Jesus is saying. 
from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, etc. And down to verse 23, all these things come from within and they defile a person. We need to change our self-identity, our self-image. We are creatures made in the image of God. We're also sinners, evil in our heart, evil in our actions, evil in our thoughts. <laughs> the, the great ideal of living naked and unashamed was destroyed once we took on the role of God to become those who declare what is good and what is evil. For as soon as that happened, we could no longer live naked and unashamed. We could no longer live in fellowship with God freely, but fear made us hide. Hiding becomes our new home, and hostility and death becomes our new world order. This evil in our hearts can't be removed by ignoring it. It can't be removed by just taking off our clothes and running naked and free in the garden. This evil in our hearts is so profound, so inveterate, so deep-seated into us that only a retribution could deal with our past errors and only a heart transplant could deal with a better future for us. But I get ahead of myself. Come back because there's one more thing we need to say about what the Bible teaches concerning evil, namely that in the Bible, evil is also spiritual. The war we wage within ourselves and in our world is one that is with the spirits of this age. So Ephesians chapter 6, we read, of course, Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So let's spend a few moments pondering the devil. Uh, he came in the form of the crafty serpent, according to Revelation 20. The serpent that man had to subdue, but sadly failed in that task, and instead accepted Satan's leadership and believed Satan's lies and suffered Satan's murderous death. For Jesus taught us about the devil in John chapter 8, that the devil is a liar by his very nature and the father of lies, and also by his lies, he's a murderer. For like sin itself, he promises freedom, but delivers slavery. Eve was deceived by his lies. They were clever, crafty ones because they were half true. Our eyes were opened. We did become like God, knowing good and evil. But that was exactly the problem. Half true means half lies. Yeah. We weren't supposed to be God like, like God in that way. And God did say we would die if we ate of the fruit of the tree. And God wasn't being mean-spirited protecting himself, but protecting us. So 
Instead of living under God's rule, we chose to live under our own rule and wound up living under Satan's rule. Our self-determined consent became our destructive captivity. For the devil, like all liars, has no power in himself. He lies about his power, about how powerful he is, but he has no power in himself other than the power we give to him when we believe his lies. If I reject a lie, if I reject a liar, they have no power over me at all. But when I buy into their lies, they and their lies rule over my life. (laughs) See, seduction can be every bit as much slavery as coercion can be captivity. So Jesus promises freedom to those who keep his word, for the truth will set you free. And in the spiritual warfare, we are armed with those words of truth. We're to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate is of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. See, the weaponry that we have, defensive and attack, is all about the truth of the gospel. But you ask, hasn't the devil got power, some power to get us to sin? Well, it's true that he does blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. But no, he doesn't have power to make us sin. Come to Ephesians chapter 2 and we read there, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, while the prince of the power of the air is a spirit, notice that he was getting us to do the very thing we wanted to. The things that were the passions of our flesh, the desires of body and mind, the things that were our nature to do, the things we wanted to do. Satan never gets me to do anything that I don't want to do. Sadly, he never has to. My own heart wants to do that which is sinful. He only needs to prod a little bit because I am evil, as you are. Mind you, there's still conflict within us, especially as Christians. The good that I want to do, I don't do, and the evil that I don't want to do, I keep doing. But that's not Satan at work. That's just by sinful nature at work within me. The conflict of flesh and spirit is in the Christian. It's not between me and Satan. It's between me and the Holy Spirit. Certainly, evil is is the work of Satan. I mean, he's even called the evil one. But the fear of the atheists that our sense of 
evil as Christians is all about the devil taking control of us and dehumanising us is both misplaced and remains quite wrong because we remain responsible. It's totally misplaced because we are all under the lies. They're under the lie of Satan's power and they're under the lie that we are not evil. But we know we are evil. So let's at last turn to God's removal of evil. For God is not like a philosopher removing evil by clever word games. God actually removes the reality of evil in his world. He does it, though, in his good time and in his good way. (laughs) There is so much about the subject of evil and the removal of evil in the Bible. There's so much of what the gospel is about. God, in his patient forbearance, being slow to anger, has endured for ages the sinfulness and evil of humanity. The arrogance of mankind making up the ideas of what is good and evil. The pain of people ruining his world, ruining his creatures, destroying each other and destroying themselves. God has put up with our wrecking his creation. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, we're told in Galatians 4. Born of a woman just as he promised to the woman, to the snake back in Genesis 3.16, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons into the very family of God. For the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, gave himself on the cross of Calvary, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. He didn't fall into temptation like Adam, but consistently he chose to deny the devil's lies as he chose to obey God's word rather than Satan's lies. As Jesus said, when he saw the moment of the cross coming before him in John chapter 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John explains it. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. For Jesus' death was no ordinary death. Jesus' crucifixion was no ordinary crucifixion. His death was the execution of the one truly sinless man. His death was the execution of God the Son as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By paying the price for sin, he released the captives of sin and condemnation. Once the penalty for sin was paid by Christ's death on our behalf, the wrath of God, the retribution against our evil was removed. The accusations of the evil one 
were answered. The power of the murderous lies were broken. And he was cast, this evil one, from his place in the heavenlies to no longer be the ruler of this world. And so now Satan goes about. In 1 Peter 5 and in James chapter 4, he goes about to persecute Christians, roaring like a lion to devour somebody. But we only have to resist him and he will flee from us. For his teeth have been pulled and his end is in sight. As Paul encouraged us in Romans chapter 16, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You see, in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, our evil past has been paid for. Our evil enemy has been defeated. The retribution for my past evil has been paid. And... In the future, well, a new heavens and a new earth is coming in which righteousness rather than evil will dwell. But there are two sides to it. One is the external threat, the devil. He will be crushed under our feet. For as Revelation tells us, God will cast the evil one into the lake of fire and sulfur to be tormented forever and ever. But what about the internal threat of evil? the evil heart that led me astray so often. Here we must remember what God has promised, the heart transplant, the new heart given by the Spirit, writing the law of God on it and moving us to be obedient to the law. But but Philip, you say, with tender conscience, but Philip, I still sin. I still find attractive sin and righteousness onerous and unpopular and difficult. Yes, we do, because there is also the Christian removal of evil. We must become wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And we can only do that by the power of the Spirit that regenerated us and has given us a new heart and has written the law upon our hearts. But he sets up within us a fight, a fight with sin, the world and the flesh, a fight that we must continue until we're called home. For now the Spirit is producing in us fruit, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's also keep step with the Spirit. That passage in Galatians 5, let me point three things out in that little passage. One, the Spirit of God is working his fruit in us. He's producing his fruit in us. Two, by being Christians, we've totally rejected the old life. We've crucified sin. We've crucified the flesh. But three, now 
we must act in step with the Spirit. See, some want to remove the tension and the fight between our old life and our new life by denying one of these three truths. They want to say, I must produce the fruit of the Spirit within myself. No, the Spirit produces these within us. Or, I am still under sin and under judgment. No, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ has paid for all our sins, past, present and future, and in my repentance I've turned away from them and renounced them all. Or three, <laughs> I can relax and just let the Spirit do it all. I don't have to do anything, do I? But our response to the mercies of God is to give ourselves as living sacrifices and so be transformed by the renewal of our minds. I must now keep in step with the Spirit. Remember Romans 12 too? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. Our minds have been so distorted by our knowledge of good and evil, so distorted that we can even call good evil and evil good. But now by the mercies of God, we are a new creation, a new heart and the spirit of God within to be changed from the inside out. Now we're to be infants in evil and adults in understanding. We discern the will of God by understanding what he calls good and what he calls evil. So those who have died with Christ and been raised with Christ now set our minds on the hopes of our Saviour, set our aspirations upon Christ and our new heavenly home. And if that is what we are to do, then we put to death what is evil in us. I have put it to death, I am now putting it to death. Thus, by God's help, we also remove evil from the place in which it dwells. And where is that? In me, in you. Thanks be to God, who by the death and resurrection of his Son, has paid for all my evil. Thanks be to God that by the risen Lord Jesus, the Spirit is given to change me, to live a new life, removing evil from my old heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all good things you give to us, but above all, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for your plan of salvation and that you have conquered evil through Jesus and that you can turn us back from our arrogance of wanting to rule the world without you. We thank you for paying the penalty. We thank you for sending your spirit to change us. We thank you for removing evil already in this world. And we pray that your son would return soon, that the serpent's head may be finally crushed under our feet. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.